The following program includes descriptions of graphic and sexually explicit violence. This show may not be suitable for those affected by such descriptions or for young listeners. Parental discretion is advised. This is New England. Articles of silk or satin. We were all afraid to let strangers come through the door. Half a million fingerprints. We started locking the doors. Abnormal sexual tendency. It was a manhunt of the century. All we knew, somebody was killing people. It's the unknown that we fear. If you really want to reach these people, you go to where they are, to the hometown. 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 Our hometown, Hyannis, Massachusetts, in the 60s, was a quiet, little, peaceful village. There were lots of green space and trees, and none of the big shopping centers and malls were there. Everyone knew everyone, and it was just a wonderful place to grow up. It was very uh, safe and quiet and fun. This was Mary Sullivan's hometown. It's about 70 miles from Boston, but even today, it's a world apart a very small town on the edge of the Atlantic. Crime in the area is still rare, and back then people left their doors unlocked at night. Mary was born here in 1944, the third of six children in a blue-collar family. My Aunt Mary Sullivan was the light of her Irish Catholic family. She grew up on Cape Cod, about a mile and a half from the Kennedy compound in Hyannis. This is Casey Sherman describing his Aunt Mary Sullivan. Not necessarily the most studious of girls, but she tried very hard. She was just a a person that had a lot of life and vitality within her. In the 1962 Barnstable High School yearbook, there's a portrait of Mary. She has short, coiffed hair, and she's wearing a pearl necklace. Let's see. This is Mary's caption under her picture in the yearbook. Robin Cruz went to high school with Mary. Sully is a happy-go-lucky girl with a cheery outlook toward life. Dancing, parties, singing, and church activities bring many happy hours to this bright-eyed girl. I would say, no, this does not describe Mary at all. (laughs) Really? Not in the least. Really? Why? Well, first, we never called her Sully. Um, Secondly, I'm not sure if she was happy-go-lucky. I think of her as more of a serious type. Dancing. I don't recall her dancing. Sometimes I would take the same school bus as Mary. Bill McGlamory was another high school classmate from Cape Cod. And I would sit with her on the bus if she was sitting by herself, just because I I think I kind of felt sorry for her, because I don't know if she had many friends. Mary wanted to go to Boston to get a prom dress. Her sister Helen asked me if I would be willing to drive up there with her. And I said, absolutely. She drove, and for two high school girls from Hyannis that never left the the Cape going over the bridge, it was a huge day. It was like crossing the Atlantic Ocean to go over the (laughs) canal. And we were just like, oh, I can't believe we can do this. But in all of Mary's quietness and timidity, she was very adventuresome. But you had to spend a day like that with her in order to become more familiar with her personality. So we chatted about everything in the whole world. Um, 
especially her strict religious background that she was not at all um, happy with. Uh, the last time I saw Mary was Thanksgiving break in 1963. Kennedy had been assassinated the previous Friday. A good friend of mine and I were <clears throat> both home from school and we were walking down Main Street in the evening, probably around six or seven o'clock. And Mary drove by in her little Nash Metropolitan, which was a little compact car back then. And it was the first time we had seen Mary, well, since high school, which was almost a year and a half. And she was all thrilled. She said she had just gotten a job at Filene's in Boston. And she was in the process of packing up her apartment. I think she was very um, anxious to get out from her parents' thumb. And uh, I think that's what drew her off the Cape and to move to Boston. She wanted to live a bit. She wanted to have a life of her own. It's a story we all know, right? A well-mannered, blue-collar kid from a small town, dreaming of independence and a new life in the big city. New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Boston. These places, with their neon signs and their bustling crowds, attracted young folks like Mary. But the city could also be a lonely place, and increasingly, in the 1960s, a dangerous one. It wasn't long after Mary started her job at Filene's in Boston that one of her co-workers, Pat Delmore, saw her sitting alone in the cafeteria. And she looked kind of sad. I said, Mary, are you okay? She said, no, I don't have a place to stay. I said, well, I have an apartment. And I said, let me talk to Pam. She said, oh, that would be great. Mary had just moved up uh, to her apartment at 44A Charles Street in Boston's Beacon Hill. Casey Sherman, Mary Sullivan's nephew. She moved in with two other roommates. They only had one bedroom. So Mary uh, had to sleep on the couch. And she was actually moving in her belongings on January 4th, 1964. Her first full day in the apartment and her last day on Earth. It's hard to imagine that an ordinary young woman from Hyannis would become the final victim of one of the most notorious serial killers of the 20th century. But that's what happened to Mary Sullivan. Today, history remembers her as the last name on a list of 13. This is the story of those women, and the killer or killers who brutally murdered them during two long years in the early 1960s. From Stitcher and Northern Light Productions, in partnership with Investigation Discovery, this is Stranglers. I'm Portland Helmick. Guys, everybody ready? Who were these women? And why in the world would anyone want to kill them? It was a crime spree that terrorized a city. We are advising the people of Boston to have proper locks on their doors. It remains one of the great unsolved cases of all time. There are leads that could have been pursued that weren't pursued. The case can be 10 years old, it can be 20 years old, or it can be 50 years old. If we get the opportunity, we're coming for you. This is the story of the Boston Strangler. Episode 1, Sisters in Death. We 
were you the one that discovered her? Yeah, Pam and I did. Yeah, both together? Uh-huh. On the evening of January 4th, 1964, Pat Delmore and her roommate had just gotten home from Filene's. It was a Saturday, and they'd been called in to help with the post-holiday returns. In this 2001 interview, Pat recalled the moment when she and Pam entered their dark apartment. Who was the one that opened the door the first? You? I remember we both went in, and, um, and there was just the light from the hall, I think, on. The rest of the, the apartment was in darkness, and uh, we both glanced over to the bedroom, and it was so grotesque the way she was. But you never want to believe this person is dead. And yeah. we went to the kitchen. We called her name up. There was no answer. So we're saying, well, you go in. No, yeah. I, I was. Uh, so she went in, and she comes running back. Her hands are up, and she's, you know, I think she's dead. She's dead. She's dead. And I just, I thought I was going to faint. I remember her grabbing my shoulders, and the tears started coming down. And I'm thinking, she's been murdered. I mean, that was my first thought. Yeah. We had no fault. I'm thinking, we have to get out of there, because maybe the, somebody's still there. Do you remember anything about the crime scene? And all these scars are of the stockings or something all around her neck. Mary had been strangled. Casey Sherman wasn't born until after Mary was killed, but he's well aware of the details surrounding his aunt's death. In fact, Mary had been strangled with three ligatures, two scarves and a nylon stocking, all wrapped very tightly around her neck. I know he had a broom. You knew about that. A what? The broom. The broom, yeah. yeah. She had also been sexually assaulted with a broomstick, the handle of that stick protruding out of her body. The killer had propped up Mary's body on pillows, her legs spread apart. By her left foot, he had placed a greeting card that said, Happy New Year. She looked awful. I mean, it was just... Sunday morning, I picked up the paper and saw the headlines that the Boston Strangler had struck again. And at first, I didn't give it a second thought. Then all of a sudden, I saw Mary's picture. And I thought, what what is Mary Sullivan's picture doing on the front page of the paper with the Boston Strangler? And I read it, and I just, I had to sit down. I thought I was going to pass out. It was just so horrible. My reaction when I found out that Mary had been murdered was complete shock. And then I, I became very sad to think that that had happened to Mary, who was one of the sweetest girls that I knew in high school. Um, I don't know. Kind of innocent. Yeah, very innocent. Mary Sullivan was only 19. Sadly, the horrific details of her death had already become all too familiar to the Boston police, the residents of the city, and beyond. The murders made headlines across the country, even around the world. Thirteen victims in total. They seemed to have nothing in common, except the terrible way they died. They were strangled, usually with a piece of their own clothing. Bill Dugan of the Boston Police Department's Cold Case Squad. It's his job to follow new leads on unsolved cases even if 50 years have passed. These women were sexually assaulted or raped, and the similarities between these cases uh, led the original investigators that were, were working on these cases to believe 
that this group of murders were committed by the same person. For two years, Boston was terrorized by a vicious phantom. The police mounted the biggest manhunt in Boston's history, but they couldn't catch their man. Women were scared to go out at night or even to open their front doors. And then, in 1965, a year after Mary Sullivan's murder, the phantom materialized. All right, now you go up to Mary Sullivan, yes, to the door, what happened? Stranglers will continue in a moment, but first we want to thank the sponsors who make this show possible. Now, back to Stranglers. Now you go up to Mary Sullivan, yes, to the door. What happened? Uh, from that door, you can open it. It opens, as I told you, into your right. And then right directly in front of you would be the bathroom. An inmate at Bridgewater State Hospital for the Criminally Insane asked to see a lawyer. The inmate's name was Albert DeSalvo. But anyhow, she invited me in, look around and do some, you know, show that the worker had to do in the apartment. So, and then she told me that her other roommates are out. And she was preparing a meal or something. And she had a little, a little knife that she used to peel potatoes or something. DeSalvo was in prison for breaking and entering and a series of sexual assaults that were not connected to the stranglings. Now, DeSalvo wanted to confess to murder. So they set up a tape recorder and he described how he had killed Mary Sullivan. First thing I did was tie the hands. And I, then I put this gag in her mouth with something in her mouth. And then I put it around her so that she couldn't scream. Yeah. And then I took and put this hair thing over her and she said, she can't breathe too well. Before, I had put the gag on her. I took this Albert DeSalvo kept on confessing. He described one murder after another, 13 women in all. He gave lots of specific and graphic details. But almost right away, there was something about the confessions that didn't make sense. No, the confessions really didn't convince anyone. Author Susan Kelly re-examined the case evidence in her book, The Boston Stranglers. She says the confessions weren't totally convincing. Parts of it were made up out of whole cloth. Parts of it were taken from inaccurate details in the newspaper. Part of it came from the interrogator who was showing DeSalvo the crime scene photos and, and asking him extremely leading questions. You know, you, you, so you had this, you know, non-confession, basically. No physical evidence, no eyewitness testimony to uh, tied to Salvo to any of the crimes. Nobody is going to take that to court. No evidence, no witnesses. And even the assistant attorney general who took the confession wasn't convinced. In fact, his exact words were, I'm from Missouri on that. What, what does that mean? Oh, it's an old expression, meaning uh, I don't believe it. Even if they didn't have enough to make a case in a court of law, the confession meant the police could tell the public they had their man. The Boston Strangler now had a name and a face. A Nashaw man has confessed that he is the so-called Phantom Strangler, responsible for the heinous sex murder of 13 greater Boston women during an 18-month period from June 1962 to January 1964. I was tied here, and I straddled her. So that her hand, I was sitting on 
But even as the panic gripping Boston faded, the doubts about DeSalvo's guilt lingered. Many officers and investigators remained unconvinced decades later. After all, a detective's job is to prove things beyond a reasonable doubt. And Albert DeSalvo's guilt had never been proven. No evidence had been put forward. Sir, floor is yours when you're ready. Until 2013, nearly 50 years after DeSalvo confessed. Good, good morning. Uh, let me start off by uh, introducing those uh, here at the podium. Uh, Standing in a row in front of the cameras are the Boston Police Commissioner, Bill Dugan, who heads the cold case squad, and Casey Sherman. Behind Casey, propped up on an easel, is his Aunt Mary Sullivan's high school yearbook photo the one with the coiffed hair and pearls. This is Suffolk County District Attorney Dan Connolly. Today we announce a major development in the investigation into the homicide of 19-year-old Mary Sullivan almost 50 years ago. In 1964, they didn't have the technology to run DNA tests on the semen found at the crime scene. But in 2013... Advances in the sensitivity of DNA testing have allowed us to make a familial match between biological evidence recovered from the crime scene and a suspect in Mary Sullivan's murder. That suspect is Albert DeSalvo. Yesterday, a Suffolk Superior Court judge authorized the exhumation of DeSalvo's remains for confirmatory testing that we expect will prove DeSalvo's guilt once and for all. At this point in time... So they drove a backhoe into Puritan Lawn Memorial Park. The small, unassuming grave marker, which read, In God's Loving Care, was removed, and Albert DeSalvo's remains were dug up. The DNA sample they took was tested against the DNA taken from a blanket found at Mary Sullivan's apartment. It was a match. I mean, you, you just carried a witness for the yes. and you hadn't penetrated her? No. Right. So then you cut her handles? And this one you... Oh, and you know, this is a, I hate to confuse you people, because this is what I hate to even talk about. I know. This is killing me to talk to you people. I just don't forget this whole thing. But well, look, listen, here's what it is. There are things that can be verified. I'll tell you right here, this is very serious. Look, I did penetrate her. Hmm. I only... Would like to come up, Casey? Yeah, sure, why not? Um, I've lived with Mary's memory every day, my whole life, and um, I didn't know, nor did my mother know, that other people were living with her memory as well, and it's amazing to me today to understand that people really did care about what happened to my aunt, a 19-year-old girl heinously murdered in 1964. And it's taken 49 years for police to legitimately say they got their man. And I want to thank them for their uh, diligence and their persistence in this case. And uh, I want to thank you all for coming here. Thank you. Casey took questions from reporters that day and went home. For him and his family, the case was closed. But solving Mary's case only reignited other persistent questions. Why hadn't those other murders been solved? Was it possible that one day they would be? I want to make clear that these developments bear only on Mary Sullivan's murder. They don't apply to the other homicides popularly attributed to the Boston Strangler. Even among experts and law enforcement officials, there is disagreement to this day 
about whether they were in fact committed by the same person. At this point in time, 50 years removed from those deaths, without the biological The Mary Sullivan homicide investigation is closed. The other murders attributed to the Strangler, we have a, the standard is pretty much uniform throughout the state. Uh, you have to have probable cause to close a case. Those cases remain open, and I've gotten calls since this incident. This is Bill Dugan of Boston's Cold Case Squad, speaking in 2013, right after the DNA results had been released. I've gotten calls from the Lynn police, the Salem police, the Cambridge police. Um, maybe with what we have for information, that might give them a direction on the ones that happened in their communities. And if we can solve some of these other ones, that would be great. Um, it's just going to be an ongoing thing. Stranglers will continue in a moment, but first we want to thank the sponsors who make this show possible. Now, back to Stranglers. A sleek, slim greyhound, which walks like she was in a parade, is prancing around the Lombardo House on Capon Street, Medford. Brindle colored. Let's go back to January of 1962, five months before the first of the Boston Stranglings. Loretta McLaughlin was a reporter at the Boston Record American, assigned mostly to lightweight features. After learning from a kennel keeper that her value on the market could be from five to $10,000, the Lombardos were doubly sure an owner would claim her. No one has. Loretta? Hi. Hi. Thanks for having us. Do you want to come in, please? Yeah, absolutely. That's Loretta McLaughlin at age 88. I caught up with her at a retirement home just outside of Boston. She greeted me in her bathrobe. You're two years from 90? That's amazing. I know. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) When we were younger, we didn't think we'd live to be 70. Is that right? That was considered old. (laughs) She told me she doesn't worry about the amount of butter she puts on her sweet potato. There's no need to worry anymore. I've made it. A little bit better. These are my boys. She showed me a picture hanging on the wall of her two sons when they were kids, holding on to their new pet. I bought them a lamb one Easter. I bought it. I was doing a feature story. And how long did you have the lamb as a pet? Oh, we had the lamb for about four to six weeks, and then I had to. I brought him back. Oh. I didn't uh, eat him or anything. Back in the 1960s, the newspaper business was male-dominated. There was at least one woman reporter on every newspaper, but they were usually assigned stories that specialized in some womanly project, uh, knitting for servicemen or something. Loretta wasn't keen on covering the puppies and lambs beat forever. She wanted something more substantial, something exciting and challenging. One day, she spotted a short piece buried on page 24 of the Boston Herald. Back Bay woman was strangled. 
Manual strangulation was the immediate cause of the death of Mrs. Anna Slezers, 56, a divorcee, whose body was found Thursday night in a third-floor apartment at 77 Gainsborough Street, Back Bay, a medical examiner's report said yesterday. Dr. George... The first of the Boston Strangler's murders was Anna Slezers, and she was 55 years old. Again, of course, in the newspapers of that day, she was described as elderly. She lived alone, street just in back of Symphony Hall, and that was her great interest in life, symphony music. From newspapers and police reports, we can reconstruct Anna Slesser's last day, June the 14th, 1962, a Thursday afternoon. Anna Slesser's was getting ready to go to church. The radio was on. She loved opera, Tristan and Isolde. She was expecting her son, Eurus to pick her up for church around 7, so she was doing some last-minute chores. Then she ran a bath. As I walked up to the door and knocked, uh, I was very surprised not to receive a reply. So I waited around there and walked up and down the street for a while. That's Eurus Slessers from an interview in 1963, not that long after his mother had been murdered. About, after about half an hour or 40 minutes, I, I decided that uh, uh, something may be wrong. and uh, I, I was looking for the janitor in order to uh, be admitted to the apartment. Eurus couldn't find the janitor. Well, actually, the door um, was not very difficult to break down. As a matter of fact, I gave it uh, one light blow with my shoulder. And gave it a second one, which was uh, a heavier blow, and the door just blew open. I went directly to uh, my mother's uh, living room and from there th- uh, to the uh, bedroom, and there was nothing there. And right away I sort of felt relieved because I, I sort of, well, maybe she was not in the apartment after all, and she was just delayed. But then I went to the kitchen and uh, I and I saw her body, which was lying on the back, uh, on the floor. Eurus called the police, and one of the first to arrive was Officer Jim Mellon. In this 1965 interview, he describes the scene. The son was already, the son was already was there. And, was he waiting when you came? Yeah, he, he had been waiting, yeah. Was he sitting in a chair? He was sitting in the living room at the time. Did he look pale? Did he look anything? No, he was really quiet. Didn't say a word one way or another. Was no. he smoking? No, I don't think he smoked. No, in fact, I know he didn't yeah. smoke. And he had said that his mother had been despondent and she had apparently committed suicide. Suicide. When police arrived at the scene, Eurus told them he thought it was a suicide. Officer Mellon wasn't convinced. Actually, my first thought when walking into the kitchen, uh, I looked at the cord around her neck then the position of the body in reference to the door, they seemed to think that she had hung herself over the door, and this would be utterly impossible. Then uh, I could see the blood where, it, uh, where she had been drugged from the small bathroom out to the, this runner-type rug. And uh, I, I get angry at the fact that somebody's trying to say this, this was a suicide because it was so obvious uh, that it was a homicide. The only fingerprints at the scene, apart from those of the victim, belonged to Eurus. There was no sign of forced entry, except the door broken down by Eurus. Nothing had been stolen, so that ruled out a burglar. But here's the real mystery. 
No one in the world had a motive to kill her, except perhaps someone who was close to her, like her son. At the time, for the lack of emotion and the lack of concern, I personally uh, liked Eurus for, uh, for doing the job. Anna Slessers had been sexually assaulted with an object and strangled. But there was another detail that stood out. She was found naked except for a bathrobe. The tub was full. She obviously was going to take a bath. But around her neck, she was strangled with her bathrobe cord tied in a great flowing bow. A great flowing bow. Specifically, a double half hitch. Now, if you aren't a Girl Scout, here's what that is. The double half hitch is a knot that kind of looks like a pretzel. It's usually used to tie a line to a post or a dock. Eventually, the papers would refer to the double half hitch as the strangler's knot. But at this point, it just seemed like a strange detail in an otherwise isolated case. Two weeks later, June 30th, 1962. Just another Saturday in Boston. First pitch of the ball game, high inside, Bauer leans away from a high inside fastball. The Kansas City Athletics were playing the Sox at Fenway Park. It was 84 degrees with clear skies. Nina Nichols, a 68-year-old widow, returned home after a few days with friends. But she only stopped by to change and pack a bag. She had plans to visit her sister in nearby Wellesley Hills for dinner and an overnight visit. The apartment was hot. Nina opened the windows and changed into a lighthouse coat. She called her sister to tell her she'd be there around 6 o'clock. There's my doorbell, she said. I'll call you back. At 7.30, her brother-in-law phoned the building's janitor and asked him to check on her. The janitor rapped loudly on the door. No answer. He opened the door with his master key. Nina's apartment had been ransacked. Drawers pulled open, clothes strewn everywhere. Through the open bedroom door, the janitor saw Nina. She was lying on her back on the floor, eyes wide open, naked below the waist. Her legs were spread, and she'd been raped with a wine bottle. Around her neck were two nylon stockings knotted so tightly under her chin that they cut into her flesh. The ends of her stockings were arranged in the shape of a bow. There was no sign of forced entry, and nothing had been taken, not even her $300 camera. Just two days after this second strangling, about 20 miles away in Lynn, Massachusetts, Annie Winchell and Margaret Hamilton stepped out of their second-floor apartments to grab their mail and chat. They were in their 70s, and this was their morning routine. A third friend down the hall, Helen Blake, usually joined them. On this morning, she didn't show. At 6 o'clock that evening, Helen's housekeeper entered the apartment. Immediately, she knew something was wrong. Every drawer was open but there was no sign of a break-in. Two bottles of milk were sitting on top of the refrigerator, gone sour. Helen was lying face down on her bed, legs spread. She was naked, except for a pajama top pushed above her shoulders. She'd been sexually assaulted. And wrapped around her neck were two stockings and a bra, tied in the shape of a bow. Authorities determined that Helen died the same day as Nina Nichols. Anna Slessers, 55. Nina Nichols, 68. Helen Blake, 65. 
all killed within a month. There was starting to be farmed a common denominator. Old woman either coming in or going out of their apartment. Found on the back, nude. It is worth noting that victim number two, Nina Nichols, had fought her killer. Under her fingernails, police found skin and blood. They tested for blood type and stored the evidence away. Reporter Loretta McLaughlin watched as a horrible pattern began to emerge. Like, when did you, in your mind, when did you think, oh my God, something extraordinary is happening here? I've never seen or heard of anything like this. When did that, when did it really hit you? Well, I'm sure by the time there was a third body, I mean, it was just too unusual. We had had other killers, we'd had other murders, but we had no serial killer as this appeared to be. Certainly not in my time. It was shocking, but for Loretta, it was also her job. And we, you know, we don't have a lot of breaking news all the time, so this was a a good opportunity to do some good news coverage. Today, the idea of a psychopathic serial killer is sadly part of our cultural lexicon. We've all seen The Silence of the Lambs and heard of John Wayne Gacy and Jeffrey Dahmer. But in the early 1960s, this was new territory. Think about it this way. Before Columbine, had you ever heard the term school shooting? Until then, mass shootings like that were hard to imagine. In 1962, the idea of a serial killer was unimaginable. But not for Loretta McLaughlin. I went to Jack McLean, who was the managing editor at the time, and I said, Jack, I said, why don't I go, summer was very dull in those days for news, and I said, why don't I look into these? And he said, oh, who cares? He said, they're nobodies. And I said, but that's just it, Jack. Why is anyone going around murdering these nobody women, these elderly women? And I said, in in that sense, I said, they're everybody. I said, they're us. And so he said, well, okay, if I wanted to, I could go do that. So I did. August 1962. Strangers to one another, they became sisters in death, each coming to the same horror-filled moment of murder by strangulation. Each frail victim was sexually abused. Following the first three murders, there were two more that summer. With each additional victim, the panic grew, and the public wanted answers. Why, with the entire force on a manhunt, were the police unable to solve these crimes? How did the killer get into the victims' homes? Why was there so little physical evidence left behind? And how did the killer, or killers, select the victims? Today, 50 years later, many of these questions remain unanswered. Over the course of this series, we'll closely re-examine the details of the Boston Strangler case. We'll meet with friends and family of the victims, and we'll hear from some of the original investigators involved. We'll revisit possible suspects, and we'll follow some new leads. I think that this case and this story continues to fascinate, not just because it remains unsolved, but also because the Boston Strangler became a much larger shared experience. Thirteen women died at the hands of the Strangler, or Stranglers, from Anna Slessers to Mary Sullivan, but they weren't the only victims. These repetitive and random crimes terrorized an entire city 
the killer could be anyone. And so could the next victim. One woman speaking from her soul to us, her sisters, so to speak, summed it up. No one knows fear as we know it. Nobody knows what a woman alone feels. I'm so nervous, I have come home from work and cried. I don't go to bed until I'm exhausted. Even then, I don't dare close my eyes. Every noise has me in a panic. I am close to a breakdown. That these good women should come to such a death and such abuse is a terrible pity. It's heartbreaking and it's petrifying. Stranglers comes from Stitcher and Northern Light Productions in partnership with Investigation Discovery. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Susan Gray. Our editor is Ben Shapiro. Kate Tibbetts is our associate producer. Taylor Dewicki is our production assistant. Sound design and mixing by the Reverend John Delore, with original scoring by Allison Leighton Brown. Special thanks to Sarah Ventre, Ben Avishai, and Malika Wolachem, and to the Harry Ransom Center for Access to the Gerald Frank Boston Strangler Recordings. The actors who appeared in this episode include Carol Drews, R. Ward Duffy, Denise Cormier. This episode included excerpts from the Boston newspaper, The Record American. Stranglers is produced with the assistance of John DiNatale of DiNatale Detective Agency in Boston. His father, Phil DiNatale, worked on the Boston Strangler case while it was happening. To learn more about Detective Phil DiNatale, his sons, John and Richard, and the world of private investigation, you can read John's memoir, The Family Business, Memoirs of a Boston Private Eye, available at www.familybusinessthebook.com or Amazon. To read more about Phil's investigation of the Strangler case and view the web series and documentary showcasing his files, visit www.strangleholdthemovie.com. You can find Stranglers through a lot of the great podcasting apps, including Stitcher. If you subscribe on iTunes, please take a minute to rate and review this podcast. It helps other listeners find the show. I'm Portland Helmick. Thanks for listening. Next week on Stranglers. At headquarters, the homicide squad checks every lead, grasps at every straw. While the city lives in fear, the police launch the biggest manhunt in Boston's history, interviewing more than 3,000 suspects. There was no computer records. They didn't have those back then. They had to hand-search files. Now, he can be nice to the devil if he can give me the information that I'm looking for. But even as they searched for information... Miss Jane Sullivan, 67, was found strangled in the bathtub of her three-room flat... That's next time on Stranglers.